Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. I hope everyone's been well, um, as well as possible. How have you been, Hannah? How have I been? All the same, man. Nothing ever changes anymore. All the same. Nothing ever changes uh, except weird stuff uh, that we're not going to talk about today. We had a whole conversation today about about what we were going to talk about on this week's podcast and all the stuff that really seems to matter is so big and we haven't, we don't have the space, I think, emotionally to, and intellectually to sort through it quite yet. Um, So this is not an episode about um, federal agents uh, in street clothes, putting protesters into unmarked rental vans and driving them halfway across the country, although that is going on in the United States um, and presumably elsewhere. Uh, we're also not talking about Boris Johnson's current trip to Scotland. Welcome, Boris. We love you. We uh, don't. Well, we don't mind you because I have a visa application coming up and... I am very grateful to be allowed to live in this country. It is a beautiful country, the best country. The bigliest country. The bigliest country. <laughs> so what what are we talking about today? Um we thought we'd do a light episode. We've we haven't done a pop culture episode for a long time, partly cuz there seems to be less pop culture around at the moment and and whatever. Uh and we also haven't done a lockdown episode. In other words, we haven't really spoken about the pandemic since the lockdown went global, as it were. And we haven't really spoken about our our experiences of lockdown. So we'll sort of uh, do those two in uh, uh, as one, as it were, where we're we are talking about the experience of going back to culturally beloved artifacts, films, TV programs, because we now have more time during lockdown, presumably some of us do at, at any rate. Um, and we are watching, we've ha- taken the opportunity to watch things that we've always been told were very good, but we never did. And how time works in, in, in terms of those texts, right? The way, the way in some cases it transports us back to the past. If it's something we've seen as a kid and then going back sort of nostalgically as with the with the recent launch of Disney Disney Plus, for example, or with films or TV programs that as I said we've 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 always known was supposed to be good and uh somehow missed us by. Um and what that might tell us about individual and cultural relationships with the past, I guess, is the is the state of the theory bit of this. Yep. Um so what are some of the things you've been consuming that are Oh man. Well, um we so in, here in the UK, Disney Plus got officially released I think the day the UK entered lockdown. So Disney Plus uh 
Disney has always had remarkable luck, I think, um, and a lot of money. But they had excellent luck here. Um, the timing for Disney Plus could not have been better for them, worse for us. Um, and the, I think that – so there was a really f- kind of funny, lighthearted article in The Guardian about this, how how Disney Plus really is a – vehicle for nostalgia for particular i mean for everyone right because most most people in the english-speaking world or in places where disney has exported its products over the last you know 60 70 years have a relationship with disney products in some way or another um and Disney owns a, a huge amount of really important and, and for our purposes nostalgic cultural capital um, and intellectual property. So they've put all of this online in Disney Plus if you've been living under a rock. Um, I ordered Disney Plus immediately uh, for for nostalgia reasons, partly, but also for entertainment reasons because I watch a lot of TV. And I was really worried that I had sort of been through the Amazon Prime and Netflix options. So I was like, well, I, I need some more stuff to watch. Um, and Disney Plus trades in nostalgia. So obviously, you know, they've got all the Star Wars collections. They've got the Marvel collections because they own all of this stuff. And then they have all of the old Disney movies in one place to stream. So if you are a Gen Xer or you're a millennial or you're a Zennial, uh, some of us like to be called, um, and you have kids, uh, or if you don't have kids, or if you have a dog like me and you want to show your dog, uh, Aladdin, which may or may not have been the first movie you saw in a movie theater, um, it's it's perfect, right? And so you get to relive the kind of the joy of watching stuff as a kid, but you also get to relive it via your own kids. Um, and my mom sent me an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is her our local newspaper, um, that was uh, one of the writers of the Chronicle over a, a number of, I think, years, watched every Disney movie ever made, with the exception, certain certain ones weren't ranked because they were so racist or not available. But there was a whole, it, there was a list of like one to 106 of Disney movies ranked that he'd done with his daughters, with his kids. And so it's there's this whole kind of realm of, of the stories themselves, the changing technology, plus this intangible emotive quality that we call nostalgia. So I have, I've been into the Disney Plus archive a little bit. Um, there's not that much there beyond stuff that most of us have, have either seen or should have seen, um, which is what we're going to get to. And one of the early movies that we watched, and this was Tom's choice because Tom really wanted to watch it because it was one of his favorite movies as a kid, was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. If you haven't watched it, go get yourself onto Disney Plus and watch it if you're one of these people that has not seen Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. If you have watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a what a, a weird-ass premise for a movie. Super bizarre. Kids love it. Should I talk? Should I talk more about this movie? I think you should. Yes, because I don't know if. Yeah, just just give a so, brief plot outline. 
so the the kind of go to actor for like weird zany kooky dad roles, uh, Rick Moranis plays this scientist, this crazy scientist who has this invention, and he's inventing a machine that can shrink objects to a, a minuscule size, like really small so that the stakes are high. Like if you get shrunk to this size, teeny tiny, no one can see you without a magnifying glass or microscope. And so life becomes really dangerous for you, more dangerous than it would be normally. And he's trying to get this machine known. Like he's taken it to conferences and he's trying to get attention for his work and he's laughed out of the room, obviously. But while he's away at a conference, his kids, two kids, and the boys next door accidentally shrink themselves with the machine. And they go on this big adventure. And it's a scary adventure. They go on this big adventure to the backyard. And they have to make it from the perimeter of their house back to the house without getting eaten by bugs or animals or uh, destroyed by the rain or stepped on and it's or drowned um, in a in a I'm using scare quotes river and they have to survive the night and get back so it's it's a whole kind of ridiculous movie but it's actually quite a clever film because it's obviously it's super white so that's the the kind of disclaimer it is a super white suburban movie made on a a lot in Hollywood but the next door neighbor kids are, they have a reputation for being like juvenile delinquents, which was the term of the day uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And the, the dad puts a lot of pressure on the older son to be a football player. He really wants his kid to be a football player. And the pressure is quite toxic um, and really difficult. And so you see the kind of emotional life of this boy who really doesn't want to be a football player. He's a bit more sensitive, but that side of him is not supported or, um, or celebrated, but he ends up next door, has a crush on the girl next door, ends up next door and they all get shrunk and he has to reinvent his masculinity out in the backyard. And there he's not just protective. He's also scared. Um, he's creative. Um, he's selfless. And there's a kind of, there's a a really interesting story about adolescent life and um, childhood emotion. Um, Also beyond the fact that it celebrates ridiculous nerdy academics, which I love. Uh, And and I guess one of the fascinating things about it is that, you know, in so far as it tells a story of taking human beings and shrinking them into tiny versions of them it's not new right i mean alice in wonderland did it uh there's that yeah. 60s movie fantastic voyage where you sort of go inside inside a human body so it's yeah jonathan swift as well the yeah. Lilliputians. yeah so you you don't you don't need to have quote-unquote an original story to create a new iteration that develops um positive affective emotional connections that are durable right so yeah. so um the the honey i shrunk the kids iteration of this story has become solidified over time into a 
a particular moment that um that we we look back with nostalgia because it it has created a a connection with us that lasts right like if you think yep. of a, a a another another children's film with a similar vintage if something like home alone home alone telling the story of a family that forgets their kid uh mm-hmm. at home ridiculous premise again but not the first one you know i mean the 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 a film that fulfills a childhood fantasy of what happens if my parents just disappeared and I could do whatever I wanted to is is a very old fantasy it's a very old premise but it's done well it's done with sort of a certain flair it it fits its moment and therefore it reminds all of us who were kids at the time of being kids and that's yeah. what disney plus trades on right the the idea that it will reconnect you back to your childhood yeah which is a, a quite a central plank in the way in which uh nostalgia is marketed or certain forms of nostalgia is marketed that you will be yep. taken back to a, a a time a simpler time when when you were a child and your experiences of the world your interactions with the world were one of that of a child yep um there's also that to and to add a layer to it the watching with your own kids yeah crew because often if if you had parents or you had siblings or you had cousins or you had aunts and uncles or you had grandparents or you had a a really close family friend or godfather whoever provided emotional care and affection for you you would often watch cultural representation or read books or with them that yes. is something so the the key relationships are built around the shared experience of consuming a lot of these materials yeah texts yeah but images. what's and i guess you know in the way that your relationship with your parental figure is never going to be the same as your child's relationship with their parental figure i.e. you every time you watch it the there is a sort of a paradox right because on the one hand the promise of disney plus is to transport you back seamlessly to the past but on the other the the present always comes in right there's a there's a brilliant article i'll i'll a book chapter which we can share in the comments by uh Catherine Belzy who's talking about in a very different context she's talking about one of these living museums right we've spoken a little bit about them in the past uh you know you can think of uh, colonial williamsburg as a living museum or you can think of that the, there are plenty around and she's talking about a particular one in south wales and she says the the promise of the museum is this direct seamless connection to the past but the present always intrudes so when you are watching something that is 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago from when you were a child it you are watching it because it reminds you of your child childhood but at the same time there are signs everywhere of quite how long it has been since you were a child and since you first watched it and i'll give you one very specific example um a few years ago we were rewatching home alone 2 
which you know is definitely inferior to Home Alone One, but is is still still a, a, an interesting film. Uh, the the premise has changed slightly in Home Alone Two. He's not actually Home Alone. Uh, the sub the subtitle is Lost in New York. So the same family they go on another holiday and surprise surprise they lose this kid again. You know, had they not been white, the kid would never be allowed to stay with them <laughs> given given the first film but ne- you know never mind uh so he ends up in new york where the rest of the family end up somewhere else and in new york he's you know again living it by himself as it were and he enters a hotel and he asks uh someone to point him to the reception because he knows you have to go to the reception to check in and i had completely forgotten about this maybe our listeners will will remember where i'm going with this but i had completely forgotten that the man who he asks for directions is a certain donald trump who has this weird two second cameo in the film now you can't not you can't watch that and not be reminded of quite how long it has been since you were a child and trump wasn't president <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Like the 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 present, your present, or sort of the 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 future of the film works backwards to change what it means. So, yes. Home Alone Two will now forever be a film which has a cameo by the future U.S. president. Yeah, and the fact that that was a ridiculous thing to think about when the film was made <laughs> doesn't change the fact the film will now always mean something different. And therefore, sort of Trump's presence in that film, I'm I'm making a lot of this this sort of, you know, 30-second cameo, but I think it's important and, and symbolic of the fact that Trump's presence in the film will always now act as a barrier to that seamless past that Disney Plus is promising you. Yeah. Because you are never going to be able to get back to that past seeing that face, seeing that man will always remind you of the fact that he is president. Whether we watch it 20 years from now, he will He will always have been president. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important um, uh, discussion around the nature of time and how memory and time and history are bound up with one another. And it's you have a similar experience in the archive Um, so, you know, often, um, you know, some, sometimes I'll get asked, you know, why do you need to study partition again? You know, don't we have enough books on partition? And it's like, well, um, every time something happens in the world that recalls partition, the archive itself changes. Yeah. The meaning of the archive and what it can tell us changes. And so there's this constant recalling of the past in order to make sense of the future or the opposite that try and forget the future but you can't and and the future the we made this point. i I say we you made this point in a previous episode about about uh maps and partition that no it wasn't about maps and partition it was it it was the episode was about brexit and uh we were talking about it was the episode we did um the day before the referendum and you made this brilliant point that whatever happens in the referendum was always going to happen in a way and we will always look back at this time the time before the referendum 
as the time leading up to whatever the result was. So now that we know the referendum passed and Brexit is happening, the day before the referendum was always the day before Brexit started, as it were. So yes. when we, when in a in a much less, in a sense, much less important, much more trivial way, but the the, the underlying point is the same. The shock of experiencing unexpectedly experiencing Trump in Home Alone 2 is that this is the man who was always going to be president. Yeah. Right. So history isn't teleological in a, in a factual sense, but history is teleological in a retrospective sense that this was always where we were going to end up because this is the only yeah. place we have ended up. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think so. We've talked about stuff that we have seen, um, and your point about Donald Trump—the the flip side in terms of like feeling an emotive effect—happened um, recently. Actually, at the start of lockdown, so I have a book club. Um, there's only three of us in the book club, and the only rule of book club is that you have to finish the book, which makes it probably we, might might make it unique among book clubs, <laughs> and also not very popular. Not we have very few people banging down our door to become a member of our book club, but we um, at the start of lockdown we we sort of did, were reflecting on our reading practices and how difficult it was to kind of get into books and just the kind of thought of meeting on Zoom and discussing the books was just quite difficult. So we decided, well, we have all these streaming services. Let's do film club where we'll each propose we have a central theme and then we each propose a film. So we watch three films and it just gives us stuff to watch and and. It was, I sort of turned it into a terrible way of making my friends watch really bad movies. And um, one, of the, one of the movies that I proposed, which was, an, according to the theme, women directors, was A League of Their Own. Um, if you're not familiar with A League of Their Own, it's a movie about the Women's Baseball League. Um, very short-lived, but uh, culturally significant, that uh, was a part of... Um, and is still a part of American nostalgia around World War II. All the men go away, including all the baseball players. They go away to war. Um, American people love their American sport, so they need to have their baseball. So um, a small women's league is put together. A number of women play. It, It becomes kind of famous. And it was really made famous by this movie in the early 90s, the story of the women's baseball Um in the U.S. Key here, of course, is that Black women were excluded because this was a period of segregation. So Black women, um, even though a lot of Black women played baseball in their own communities, in their own community leagues, they were not included. So there's one really important scene in this movie um, where you see the absence of Black women players. um, And it was one of, it was a really important kind of moment but what's really interesting about this movie is Tom Hanks is in it. It's one of Tom Hanks's earlier roles, obviously, because this is the early 90s. And the two women in my book club haven't seen this movie. They had not seen this movie. They hadn't watched it. They'd heard of it, but hadn't ever watched it. And I was like, okay, well, it's, it's kind of a classic movie made for, you know, kids and family audiences. See what you think. The first thing they said was Tom Hanks plays such an asshole and he, it's not convincing. Because he, Tom Hanks isn't that. Yeah. Tom Hanks is not a dick. Yeah. And I was like, 
this is one of his classic roles. There's no crying in baseball. It's a meme. Like, I, But because after 25 years or whatever of Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks and creating a persona and creating a career out of being America's dad, my friends as adults couldn't watch A League of Their Own and take Tom Hanks seriously. And it's exactly that kind of the passage of time means that my experience of watching the film is rooted in my memories of watching the film as a kid. Theirs is purely the life experience that they've lived up to now. So so my equivalent of that story is um, a couple of days ago, for the first time, never having watched it before, I watched The Princess Bride. Uh, Woo, congratulations. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Which um, I'd, I'd always known of as, as being really good. People, people whose opinions sort of dovetail with mine have said, you know, it's the the best film ever made type thing. Um, and now that I've seen it, I understand maybe about fifty percent more of the memes that float around my <laughs> social media network than I did before, because it it might be the most memeified film ever. You know, the the number of really familiar memes to anyone who's been on Facebook and Twitter that come from that film is, is, is actually quite astounding. Um, so yeah. And, and, and it is therefore impossible to watch that film and not think about these memes, you know, the, the inconceivable line or, you know, I'm an Igor Montoya line or whatever, whichever line you might want to pick up. And there's so many to choose. These lines mean something different having been memeified on Facebook and Twitter than they did when the film first came out. So what did you think of The Princess Bride? Um, I really liked it. I really liked it. I think um, it's... I was saying this before we turned the recorder on, that um, for an American film, it gets English humor very well. And, you know, there, there are moments of the moments in the film where the humor, the humor is sort of Monty Python-esque. There was, a, there was yeah. a, a a number of things that reminded me of Python. And, uh, you know, while it is obvious that, like many other people, Python haven't necessarily aged well, um, <laughs> it is also true that some of the stuff Python did, did were was stunning. Uh, and, yeah. and, I, and therefore, I mean it as a huge compliment when I say it's some of the humor is Python-esque. Uh, and it's just joyous and charming and and sort of, wonderful wonderfully f- flamboyant the flair is just brilliant sort of everyone has this really um self-conscious self-aware flair and flamboyance which is um yeah it's joyous yeah there are a lot of layers to the self-awareness of the princess bride that is also there in the book so it's really interesting that the film was so successful at capturing some of the rhetorical success of the book, some of the the craft in the book is is really clever. Um, what I love too about The Princess Bride, because we were talking about this before when we were talking about nostalgia um, and the, the relationship between parent and child and the, the role of the family, is the framing narrative of The Princess Bride is the grandfather reading, reading to his sick grandson reading a book that is, fr- it's a fictional book that is from 
his childhood. And the kid starts out really skeptical. It's like, I don't want to read an old book. This is uh, Fred Savage, by the way. I don't want to read an old book. It's, you know, you're an old, old, irrelevant, you know, dude. I don't want to I, take this away. I want to play my video game, which is what is it like an Atari that he's playing in the movie? Yeah. And and then, of course, the whole um, the whole story is is them returning to the various chapters of the book and and one of the classic memes that has reappeared now that is really timely is about where we are now oh the pit of despair and the um the relationship between the grandfather and the grandson is key to the success of the book because it's this time it's the supposedly timeless story that can be appreciated and loved and captivating and enchanting for all time. And that is. And, and of course, and absolutely, but, but equally you have very precise, completely unintentional, unpredictable moments that rooted to the present, right? That root this timeless story to the present. So uh, uh, for those of you. I think in the Princess Bride, I think they are intentional. Well, the the example I'm giving isn't couldn't be, but oh, the, okay. so so f- for those of you who haven't seen it, it won't spoil anything. There's a a, a, a conversation between two characters, uh, one of whom happens to be wearing a mask at the time, uh, and so the first character says, "Why do you wear a mask? Were you burned by acid or something like that?" And the 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 man in black who's wearing a mask replies, "Oh no, it's just they're terribly comfortable. I think everyone will be wearing them in the future." Now, <laughs> as I'm watching that the film in the middle of coronavirus, you know, with 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 all of all of that 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 means, I can't not think of this four-way line which meant nothing when it was written as connected to me in the present. And I guess that's what's interesting for me about nostalgia. And I might have mentioned this before. You know, I've 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 written about nostalgia in a very different context. I find nostalgia completely fascinating. And the reason I find it completely fascinating is it is one of the one of the one of the things that nostalgia does is create a very complex set of connections between past, present and future. Um, because on the one hand, nostalgia is always critical of the status quo, right? It is always critical of the present. So in that sense, nostalgia is quite presentist. It's about, it's about dissatisfaction with the, with the present. And therefore it, it jumps back to the past, but in a way that, that always reminds you of the present, uh, and therefore possibly opens up space to, to shape the future in a slightly different way. Um, and that that can be uh, uh, regressive and reactionary. So, you know, the nostalgia of Brexit or the nostalgia of, of Make America Great Again. Or it can be uh, progressive in the sense that it allows you to recapture lost stories, right? Stories that have been marginalized over, over the years. Um, 
And that can be profound in the sense of communities telling their own stories. And it can be trivial where a throwaway line in a fantasy film that that isn't at all connected to the world we live in today. But the nostalgia that that film evokes ends up being, always ends up being rooted to the world we are in because the present always intrudes. The, it, 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 it always becomes about the present. You look quizzical. No, I'm just trying to... I'm, there's a number of different ways we could go to make this episode more boring or less boring. Because it is, I mean, the, the, for anyone who's interested in, in thinking historically yes. and using, uh, using documents and texts and materials that were made in the past in order to say something both about, because I think one of the, one of the important things that um historians and other scholars who use the past in the way that we really like in a way that really speaks to us is always about how, and it's, it's conscious. This is part of the, the, um, to use the wanky term methodology of it, that it is about the relationship between the, the past itself, the, the content of, the materials, the content of the documents, the the, the events, as it were, but ha- and how that relates explicitly to the narrative, which is always being told in the present. The narrative itself and the the story, as it were, the way that we emphasize certain things over others, the way that we frame our questions of inquiry, the things we want to find out the politics underpinning why we're asking the questions and the politics then of how the work goes out into the world, those things have to, and I think really good historical work is, is aware of this tension has to be rooted in the present and has to know and be self-aware enough to recognize how the present is shaping the reading of the past. And that relationship is a minefield. It yeah, it is. I mean, I guess I, I, and partly because of the kind of work I do, I always get asked this question if I'm giving conference papers or whatever about either about my use of oral history or or, or of my use of nostalgia or whatever. And I, I, I mean, partly there's a kind of performance in the way I perform a self-deprecation when I answer, but part of my answer is always comes back to I don't have the burden of a historian. Because I'm not a historian, I'm not interested in what really happened in the past. I'm interested in how that, that past is remembered and, and, and that connects the past to the present present absolutely immediately. But I guess, I, I, I think it was really clear the way you separated out the, the document of the past and the narrative of the present. Uh, but I, I guess my response would be that the the narrative of the present always changes the document of the past, right? The the, the oh, well, that, so that is the that is the end point yeah. here. So You're the, right, so, like that's the so you know if I you know let's say as part of my research, uh, I am looking at a a letter that was written by a man in in London to a man in Calcutta 
1956. That letter does not mean what it did then. No, that letter that that letter is is a by the fact that it has been saved and it has been put into an archive and it has existed in the world through us a whole host of political changes through everything that has happened in the world between 1957 and now that letter means something fun- fundamentally different now than it did when it was written it also and this is where the identity of the researcher becomes really important it's also different that you read it yeah so the 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 researcher who's using the text is a part of the process and it changes fundamentally based on who you are so that, um, and, and there's a pop culture similarity here. And I think it sort of, it, in a sense, recalls our, our quite scary episode on the alt-right and memes on the internet using pop culture references that the, the identity of a person who connects with the pop culture references shapes the way that they live their life around it. So you and I wouldn't necessarily be affected by certain memes that are put out on, on uh, message boards because, because we aren't the audience and we're not the audience because our history, as it were, and our present responds to those pieces, those documents in a particular way. And this is where kind of historical theory comes in um, or kind of historiography and the practice of historiography, which is that I think a a really good historian that I would say is a really good historian, other people might not, a really good historian and a really good historical geographer is the craft of what they do and the, the methodology of what they do is interested in what you're talking about, this kind of end, the end point of the research, which isn't, isn't to get an account of what actually happened because you can't. It's not possible to get an account of what actually happened for the same reason that Brexit was always going to happen. Yeah. And, and if Brexit hadn't had... If the referendum hadn't gone the way it did, then it was never going to happen. Exactly. Both options retrospectively become inevitable. Exactly. So I have a question for you. Yeah. You used a phrase, and I love this phrase because Tom and I talk about it all the time. If a piece of pop culture ages well, what do you think? I mean, it, it, it always requires a passage of time, so you always have to wait. But what do you think constitutes aging well versus not aging well? And why is it that the Princess Bride, and particularly this kind of, you called it trivial, but I think it's, there's something about the generality and the, the context and the, the theme and the tone of the mask line that makes it transmutable, that means that it was kind of waiting for this moment. Um, the- but other stuff doesn't age well. I think um, I don't know if this answers the question. The trans I've been thinking a lot about the transmutability of the Princess Bride, and I this is a different episode I think for for us. But I the the word that I 
having seen it, you know, a couple of days ago and been thinking about it, the word that comes to me in terms of my association with the film or the way I think of it is camp. Camp in yeah. the sense of the Susan Sontag definition in Notes on Camp, right? The superficiality. That is what makes yeah. it transmutable, I think. Um, yeah. In terms of what age as well, I think uh, the ways in which a text, certainly a, a piece of popular culture, can adapt to changing norms and values in society. That is one way of defining what age as well. So um, I think if you see if you see something. Um, Take a, take another vehicle of nineties nostalgia. Take the sitcom Friends, right? Which yes. I think most of our audience will have seen. There are bits of Friends that have aged so badly. Yes, right. Like the there's so much transphobic humor, so much homophobic humor. Uh, there's such a lack of diversity in terms of race. Uh, the you know Ross's gender politics are awful. There are lots and lots of ways in which. Uh, Friends has aged badly having said that the first season of Friends depicted a lesbian wedding yeah which given when it happened is not nothing yeah right so so it's it's how you it's it's context it's always contextualizing it's always historicizing but the ways in which there are bits in the text that you can see has a kept up with changing social mores and social norms as i said earlier but also you can see that this was not of its time it was transmutable in the in the way that um you you describe the the mask line in in uh, princess bride right if you think if another vehicle of British 90s nostalgia, a sitcom, Black Books, which maybe not all of our listeners will know. I, and it's another thing that I I had always been told that this is good and I, I was trying to watch it. And as far as I could tell, it has aged really, really badly because it is a sitcom about the incompetence of white men, except none of the incompetence has any consequences, right? They're all allowed to... to f- to upwardly fail, as it were, to fail upwards. Uh, none of them lose their jobs. None of them, you know, they all get to survive. He, the the main character who owns a book bookshop gets to carry on owning a bookshop. So, in that sense, it and you see it, and it it is so nineties, and it fits so many of the tropes of other things that are happening in British TV in the nineties. Um, so, I guess. A short answer of of aging well and aging badly is things age badly when they age, right? And aging mm. well is somehow not aging. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you so the in the in the nineties too, in in the US, there was especially in the early nineties, there was a a battle between um, a really conservative approach to television and a more progressive and inclusive approach to television. So there used to be, I mean, the, the talk about aging badly, the Cosby show, um, the, but there used to be representations of black family life on American TV, the golden girls, right? The golden girls um, presenting, you know, 
single geriatric women on TV. You know, there there were hints of of a potentially more progressive future. And a lot of those shows, especially like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, have aged well in the sense that a lot of the issues are still timely. And this is where it's not good that the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is completely is still relevant because a lot of the issues that, that Fresh Prince was trying to bring to mainstream audiences was trying to deal with, was trying to ask uh, mainstream Americans to consider were not ever considered seriously, even though the show is a national treasure and its star Will Smith is a national treasure, you know? So there's also a flip side where it hasn't aged well, as you say, because it hasn't aged. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good enough moment to stop. Um, yep. This was a, as we said, this was, we set out to do a slightly lighter episode. So hopefully that, that, that's, uh, you know, you've enjoyed that. Let us know, let us know what, what you make of nostalgia, what, what vehicles of nostalgia work for you and what don't and why. Um, I'm sure our normal service in terms of dark and depressing thoughts will resume soon enough. Uh, But either way, (laughs) we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?